2: For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your
1: personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
0: What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is
1: going to end up? Understand the economy, you have to understand human nature.
2: This podcast is powered by
1: Acast. How are you doing there? It is podcast time. Uh, How are you, Johnny? I'm very good. I'm very good. I see you're a big hero. Bob Dylan <laughs> is 80. Yeah. this year. He's. Do you know what?
2: You reminded me of that. I totally forgot. But. My
1: mother's only eighty-eight. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good point. That's a very good point. I just have to tell you uh, that John destroyed for a number of years my musical taste I, by I not did. only introducing me to Bob Dylan when we were kids, but kind of a barrage. It was like it was like a it was like a Gaza city sort of barrage of Bob Dylan rockets coming into our house. I don't
2: see it like that at all. I see a, a, that I enlightened you, Macker, into the world of fantastic. Lyrics and you know he was just amazing. But I will tell you this: Tell me it. When Dylan came, eighty four was it? Yes, the worst
1: concert I was ever at. It
2: was also my worst concert. It was. It was
1: so bad it was kind of good. (laughs) But I've seen
2: him about three or four times since, and I will never go and see him again.
1: He's just brutal. He's just just brutal. He doesn't give. He doesn't give. Yeah, you got to go to the well when you're doing these things. Yeah, you know you really do. It was funny though. Just I was I was thinking about Dylan. Just before we started talking, the last time I was out because I know we're going to be out quite soon, right? Yeah, out and I was, bad, as Marlowe I was in New York in Broadway, Conor McPherson's play, "The Girl from the North Country." Oh, yes, yeah, where yeah. Dylan yeah. contacted Conor McPherson, the Irish playwright, and said, "Here's my back catalogue. Have it." Yeah, right. It was amazing. It was extraordinary. So I, I went along, and it was it was it was the it was the preview night, and so they were all like the New York Times sort of review yeah. critics, and this was a big big deal for Conor, obviously because. New York Times can destroy Broadway, right? Yeah, yeah. And the, the the critic from the New York Times gave it an amazing review. But the day afterwards, the entire Broadway closed down for the first time ever because of COVID. So I was in New York on the Saturday oh, before. Right. So remember that the COVID hit here yeah. on that weekend? I was in New York that weekend. Right. Yeah. And it's amazing to think how many of these theatres will actually recover. How many of these businesses will recover? How many, you know, bars, theatres, restaurants... All these things, because later on, I want to talk to you about Anthony Bourdain
2: and restaurants, right?
1: And a a concept of the city. But it just struck me that, you know, the amount of money plowed into these big productions all over the world. Mm. And all that money's gone. Yeah. And you wonder, well, Broadway didn't even close. Think about it, in the Second World War or in the Spanish Flu. Right. And it closed in this time. Wow, I didn't know that actually. Yeah, and the West End in London. Oh. And of
2: course, you know, like we've been saying all the way along, is um, all the kind of actors and musicians and yeah. Create. By the way, he's drinking water with ice, and it's not a cocktail.
1: <laughs> it's a real shame. That's a real shame. <laughs> but actually, let me
2: ask you one more question. Then was Dylan actually at the that performance?
1: No, uh, Connor told me that Dylan has come to one. Want- I think it was he, Conor had a play called The Seafarer, which also opened in New York. And I also saw it. Right. And uh, it's not that I go to New York all the time well, to the theatre. Like, yeah, but the last over for
2: a bit of shopping. No, right?
1: over no, the last couple of times I happened to be there, he happened to be there, and, and there was something. And Dylan apparently went incognito all right. to The Seafarer and liked it so much and liked Connor McPherson's work that he said, look, I'm going to give this guy, wow. I'm going to trust what an this amazing, guy. It's an amazing story, isn't it? isn't it? And it's a story that most Irish theatre people or artistic people don't know Mm. that Bob Dylan gave Conor McPherson his back catalogue. Now, think of the amount of trust. Yeah. Like, think of the amount of times Steven Spielberg would have approached Dylan for his back catalogue. You know, any of those big movie moguls, right? And yet he picked an Irish playwright. And he said...
2: You know, I haven't seen that and I'd love to see the
1: girl from North County. Yeah, it's about about Dulwich. Is that where he's from? Duluth. Um, Duluth. Duluth, Minnesota. Yeah, and his... Dylan's parents ran a B&B boarding house mm. in the Great Depression. So it's about the characters who ended up in the boarding house, right. kind of down and out, people down on their luck. Again, the sort of people that Bourdain is talking about, we're going to talk about in a, in a yeah. minute. You know, People running away from crimes or ex-wives or ex-husbands. You, or, but you can imagine uh, you
2: know, Conor McPherson sitting there and Dylan says, take
1: my catalogue where do you begin, you know? Well, that's the point. And he's very interested in that, Connor, because he said, look, I didn't want to go down the, you know, like a rolling stone, all the all the greats. Yeah, he said, yeah. I wanted to find some sort of unusual ones yeah. that were maybe address the issue of the Great Depression. And when Dylan was writing those, that in the back of his head was his parents' experience right. in the Great Depression as the B&B owners. I just think it's a, yeah, it's a lovely yeah. thing, but we could talk about this all night. In actual fact, you- we're going to play out with Somebody I've been listening to recently, who I think is the new Dylan. Ooh. Okay. Yes. Yes. An English, who an, who <laughs> an English, gorgeous, gorgeous voice. Amazing, amazing lyrics. Call, singer called Arlo Parks. Let's oh, we'll yes, do it later on. Yeah, yeah, do
2: it later on. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. And who, by the way, won a, the Brit Awards this week, last so, week.
1: So you know these things. I don't know these yeah, things. Yeah,
2: well, I ended up watching that. It was just ridiculous. Just nonsense. I hate award shows, but I ended up watching that.
1: No, the awards. Well, in actual fact, on on the TV, we're going to talk about the TV show that I saw this week and how it reflects economics. It's a conversation between Anthony Bourdain and Debbie Harry of Blondie. And it was about New York in the 70s, but actually, it was about the housing market. So let's talk about that. But first, John, we're going to talk about, is inflation back?
2: Mac, you know, over the course of two years now, we're podcasting.
1: I know. I hate this. Can't stand the sight of him. <laughs> But you know, we I just were, only see you about once every few months. Yeah, I know. I know. Now you're living here. <laughs> yeah, I'm living here. <laughs> Get out of the place. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, like a little kid's Honey, John, I'm home. John's room. <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's, it's like a wild teenager in there.
2: But come here. Let's talk
1: economics. All right, Sunshine.
2: Over the last while, you've always been saying that we need a little bit of inflation. Just, yeah. just to get the economy buzzing again. Yeah. But interest rates have been so low for yeah. the last while yeah, that yeah, inflation yeah. hasn't budged at all. But apparently the consumer prices and consumer inflation yeah. has risen to 4.2% in America. Yeah. What does that mean? And What's the impact of that?
1: That has spooked the hell out of all sorts of financial markets because the working assumption for all these people – and. I'm going to break it down in a second what it's all about, was that we are in a deep deflationary period, yeah. precipitated by COVID, and as a consequence of that, inflation will not re-emerge for quite some time. Mm. And the Federal Reserve has been very, very chilled about that and said, you know what? We're not worried about inflation. And then, of course, lots and lots of people have said the Fed will wait until they almost see the whites in the eyes of inflation before <laughs> increasing the interest rate. Right. And people are saying now, well, hold on. Those eyes look pretty white. You know, 4.2% is 100% above the inflation target. So the Fed's target is inflation between 0 and 2%. Okay? Implicit, not explicit, but implicit, right? When you go to 4%, you're saying, hold on a second, you're not only missing your target, but in actual fact, it's way beyond it. And of course, there's been a hissy fit in financial markets. And people are saying, this is the end of this period of very, very low interest rates. Is this being blamed on Biden, by the way? Ah, no, no. I mean, only... Egypt's, say, the president is responsible. You know I mean? Fox right. News probably says it is, right? Yeah, well, I'm sure they but, do. But the first more. thing is the most critical thing about statistics is you never take just one print and say, this is a trend. Okay. Yeah. That's the first thing. The second thing is year-on-year inflation is basically it measures the consumer price index this year vis-a-vis last April. So there's a thing called base effects in statistics, right? Right. Now, base effects is how the base affects the actual figure. So if inflation fell dramatically last April and even was the same this April, the year-on-year figure would be much higher. Do you see what I mean? So basically, if if last April there was something happened in the world that inflation fell, then you're comparing last April to this April, the base Effect will actually drive inflation upwards, okay. not downwards. Yeah. And then you think, was there a base effect? And you think, what happened last April? Last April we have the first month of the lockdown. People aren't going out, restaurants, bars, etc. Shops, right? Yeah. So how do shops react? They drop their prices because everyone thought that we would be out of the pandemic in six weeks. Remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> oh, so everyone God, thought, yeah, you know, too. yeah. So everyone thought at the time, okay. This ain't gonna happen. This isn't gonna go on for a year. So we'll drop prices now, we'll be in a good position, mm. we'll coax people back in. You know what? We'll all be out in 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 May, we'll have lower prices, they'll come in. Of course, that didn't happen. Yeah. So again, the first thing about statistics is always look underneath the hood, as the Yanks would say. Yeah. Look at the figure, right? So the base effect, very important. Then the second thing is the one-off increases in certain prices. So for example, I was telling you, airline price has gone through the roof. Yeah. And used car prices gone through the roof as well in the United States. That all impacts interestingly, and it's, it's, it's bizarre, rents are continuing to fall in America. So rents have actually okay. not gone up. And this is, again, because of the fact that people are leaving the big cities. And so when people are leaving right. San Francisco and New York and all these places. They're being forced out. Yeah, they're being forced out. Well, no, the pandemic forced a lot of them out. Yeah. And they've said, okay. They've gone go, home. They've gone home. Go, yeah, so again, and again, because the American market is much, much more vibrant, much more sensitive to demand than our own market, right? Mm. What you see is all this. So. My attitude is we should be quite chilled. Wait until we see the next couple of months. But then there is one big imponderable, and it's the role of China. And I know you like China because it reminds you of Donald Trump. China. Right. So for the last 20 years, China has been what they call a disinflationary force in the world economy. So what has happened is because so much of American production has shifted from high-cost America to low-cost China, and then those goods that were produced in low-cost China are re-exported to America, the same goods at lower prices. Yeah. So China is exporting deflation, if you get that, right? China, the influence of China is that the price of cars is going down, the price of iPhones, the yeah. price of all this technology, right, yeah. is going down. Because what had been made in the United States was what they call offshored to China. Yeah. What had, therefore, been expensive, because American wages are much more expensive than Chinese wages, or were, mm-hmm. right, becomes cheap. And then that goes back and Imagine global inflation to be like a relay race, yeah. right? That I'm passing the baton to you, you're passing the baton to me, right? So basically, the Chinese were passing on the baton to the Americans of all the stuff that was made in China, and all that stuff was substantially cheaper 20 years ago, 10 years ago, 5 years ago but not so much anymore cuz chinese wages are rising right so okay. the question then the big question for american inflation can i sorry just
2: yeah. before you go there how did the tariffs the trade war affect inflation it would there?
1: have affected it in 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 a negative way it would have pushed up prices yeah 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 yeah, 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 yeah absolutely right absolutely right so that would have pushed up prices mm. as well so then the question is now so if you look at all this kit that we use here for the podcast right yeah There was a time that would all have been made in Germany because it's better. I thought, is it still made in Germany? Now a lot of the stuff I'd say is made in China.
2: Yeah. It's
1: cheap. German company, actually. German company, well, it's like, yeah, a German company making it in China, Mm. saving money, then re-exporting. So China has been this massive deflationary force in the world because China was catching up and because China was cheap. But now there's no reason to believe in the future. You know, that baton idea, that China will be passing on a low-priced baton to the United States in the relay, I'm not sure that's going to be the case anymore. So basically that massive deflationary bias that was there in the last right. 20 years maybe becomes a neutral bias or an inflationary bias. So that's what you've got to worry about more. So what I would say in the States is there's a couple of things going on. One is when the demand, the American economy yeah, is operating now at a growth rate about 10% higher, it's growing about 10% annualized right now. Wow, that's huge. Huge, right? So American supply, okay, the production capacity of the economy hasn't adjusted to that, right? Okay. The benign scenario is that American production capacity will expand and therefore prices will fall. That's the first thing. Okay. The second thing is what about the impact of China? Does China become a deflationary or an inflationary force? They're all the things, they're the imponderables. Mm. But what I would say to you is that it seems highly likely to me that this 4.2 rate of inflation, you won't see that again, that that type of number. It'll so the, actually fall down, again, coming from the base effects more than anything yeah. else.
2: So you're saying that 4.2 inflation might not be accurate at all. So there mightn't be any inflation as such well, if you're taking in the, the base level first.
1: Yeah, I think there the, the, the will be some because the economy is recovering. But yeah. at its core, I think economists misdiagnose a lot of things about inflation. So economists, particularly monetary economists, would say inflation is related to the money supply. And yeah. it, the money supply expand. but at Other its, economists, you mean. Other economists, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Other lads, other lads. So, you know, it's like a broad church. It's a broad church, you know. It's a, it's, it's it's an interpretation of the scripture, okay? So I mean, you have the Lutherans, the Methodists, the, yeah. you know, the Plymouth brethren, the Preacher go on the whole go for thing. It. But it is, it is like, so at its core inflation is about power. It's about the power to pass on price increases. Mm. So if you look at it like that, so have workers got the power to demand higher wages? Yes, then you're going to get inflation. It's about power. Does a company have the pricing power to pass on higher prices? If that's yes, then you're in an inflationary situation. And what you are then, John, is having this battle, I think we've talked about before, between Schumpeter Mm -hmm. and Phillips right? The Phillips curve is about the relationship between unemployment and inflation, which is basically the idea that you can have low unemployment, but you've got to have high inflation that go together. And the reason is the lower the unemployment, the tighter the labor market, the more power workers have, and the higher wages, right? Yes. Okay, so you can choose. Schumpeter, which has basically been much more descriptive of the last 10 years, is saying, on the contrary, technological change and globalization and the gales of creative destruction and better products, that's what's driving prices down. So you have right. this battle between She's, Schumpeter and Phillips. Phillips being the Phillips curve, which was yeah. the old way of looking at it. And Schumpeter, although he's well dead, is very much the new way of looking at things.
2: So it's so what what Schumpeter is saying is that you can still have low unemployment, but and late, low wages. And low wages. And
1: low wages. Now, right. Now, my view is that that's a disaster situation because high wages are actually what we're here to do. Mm. Higher wages are actually, that's what economics is about. Yeah. Right? And in fact, the entire Biden drive is to increase wages for the average person, right? So the Schumpeterian view is great if you're an entrepreneur, right? Yeah. Because you're getting a bigger bang for your buck. You're getting more product at less wages. But ultimately, and this is the key, Keynes would say, but you need to have people to buy your products. Yeah. And this is the this is the Henry Ford idea. Henry yeah. Ford paid his workers really well, not because he liked them. In actual fact, he hated workers. He hated <laughs> trade unions. Yes. He used to employ the mob to break up trade union membership.
2: Yeah, Hor- he horrendous, was a horrible period. person actually. But
1: he's a terrible racist as well. He, unbelievable anti semite That was his thing. Right. He's anti-Semitic and anti-black and yeah. uh, and anti-trade union. Right. <laughs> yeah. But he had one moment of inspiration, which was that. I will pay my workers much better than anyone else, not because I like them, because I want them to buy my cars. Yeah. And his idea yeah. was that we cannot have a consumer society without a high-wage society. And in fact, Ford was very much ahead of his time in in, in many, many things, but apparently a very deeply, deeply unpleasant uh, person. So the idea that wages can remain low for long is, I think, a fallacy, mm. right? That the whole objective of of new economics and Bidenomics is to bring inflation up and bring wages up. But this print from this week, I think, over-eggs the pudding a little bit. And the really key thing to watch, I'm going to talk about house prices in a second, but the key thing to watch is this Chinese baton. If China becomes an inflationary source in the world, mm. then we're in a totally then we are in a brave new world and all bets are off.
2: So, so, and and just for, as a headline figure of 4.2% or whatever, that's going to be spun oh, yeah. like, like you wouldn't believe by, by the Republican side. Well, Saying yeah. Bidenomics doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's he's going to run the, the country. But you know the great thing about stuff.
1: Joe Biden? He's, he doesn't give a shit. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah. I mean, that's the amazing thing about him. I was even watching him in this Arab-Israeli thing. Usually, if the Israelis and the Palestinians were involved in the horrendous stuff that's going on now, the Americans would have an envoy straight away. Yeah. Biden's, yeah. Biden's not doing anything. He's kind of said to Netanyahu, you fix it. You, you started it. Yeah. You fix it. So in a way, Biden is not, what I like about Biden is that he seems to me to be unencumbered by noise, right? And he doesn't react. Mm. Contrast that with Trump, right? If Trump yeah. was on, right, he doesn't react. He says, I've got a pandemic on my hands. I've got a, an economy that needs healing on my hands. I want to figure out our relationship with China. I want to figure out our relationship with, with Russia. These are my big yeah. foreign policy and domestic policy. I have an environmental policy that I want to get sorted. Yeah. And he's not affected by the noise. And that's, that's sort of- because he's asleep. But that's, <laughs> that sort of single-mindedness, John, <laughs> Jesus, interests me.
3: Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too
2: so we're talking about inflation there and of course a related topic is housing which we talk yeah absolutely yeah but it's interesting i saw a thing on cnn there with a load of fake news (laughs) but but it was really interesting they were saying that house price because it's not just housing we go on about in ireland But it's a very big issue right across the world. Yeah. And CNN were talking about this, where they were saying house prices across 37 different countries in the OECD have risen by 6.7% between 2019 and 2020. And they were saying it's the fastest year-on-year growth in the past 20 years.
1: Yeah, no, it's happening all over the world. I mean, we become obsessed in Ireland because it's the conversation that Irish people are having. Yeah. It's the conversation that Irish politics is having. In fact, Micheál Martin came out the other day and it was like a light bulb moment. He says, the single biggest issue for young people is housing. I felt like, man, you're only yeah. that now. Yeah, yeah. You know, but but let's go broader. But he was down with the kids, you He know? was down with the kids. No, but let's go broader. Let's go broader. Yeah. Which is that you're seeing this in all major urban areas all around the world. Uh, London, for example, you know, house prices in England are up eight and a half percent last year, right? Despite it being probably the worst recession in three centuries. Think right, about it. Right? Yeah. So normally what happens at house prices is they go with income. Yeah. So basically they go with GDP. So if GDP is falling, house prices will generally be falling. But what has happened in this pandemic is something quite, quite different, right? Which is an extraordinary, I mean, for example, again, we go back to London, right? Yeah. London house prices that are within our commute of London. Have gone up by ten percent this year, right? right? British house just price, this year alone, yeah, just this year alone. Wow. Right, British house prices. And in actual fact, if you talk to anybody involved in the property game in England, they'll say that houses in really nice rural areas have gone up even more because lots and lots of Londoners are saying, "Well, if I'm going to be able to work for three days a week or two days a week yeah. at home, I don't want to live in Putney, where <laughs> I believe the <laughs> Davis Fortune is stashed." Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, but I don't want to, you know, I don't want to live there and be. Tube bound, I'm going to yeah. live miles away. And you're seeing the same thing in New York, you're seeing the same thing in San Francisco. You know, think about this in China as well, what they call tier one cities, mm. Shenzhen, Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou. Prices have risen by 12% on average year on year, right? So we're seeing this all over the world and there's now what they call a race for space. Now, remember we talked about panic buying. Mm. This is what I think... And remember we just said recently, just, just a minute ago, about inflation. Yeah, Inflation is about power. It's a power to be able to increase prices. So home sellers, house sellers now have all the power. They have the power to increase prices and prices are going up. And we've talked about the buyer strike before. Like if I was 30 years old, there's no way I'd get involved in this market. Yeah. Because it's just too dysfunctional. And I was watching something the other day on Netflix, John. All right. It's an interview with Debbie Harry brilliant Debbie Harry looking extraordinary yeah it's just a recent interview yeah like last year with Anthony Bourdain right right? and it was amazing right because what they were talking about they were talking about culture they were talking about obviously Bourdain and, and Debbie Harry broadly around the same generation hung out in New York in the kitchens Hung out in the Lower East Side and the CBGB places, right? It's Andy Warhol and it's, you know, it's Patti Smith and it's It's Blondie. New York was really cool. And it's the New York Dolls and it's television and all that great stuff, right? But New York was really cool. Yeah. And they were talking about New York being really cool and creative and interesting. But what I got from this, they were actually talking about housing because they were making the link between the fact that New York was affordable for yeah. all these misfits and oddities and creatives and whatever, and the fact that once you put together all these people in a creative stew, so to speak, yeah. in the Lower East Side, amazing things happen because yeah. people meet each other, right? Yeah. And they were making the point that, and it's true, if you're in Manhattan now, the only art is upscale art galleries. Like nice. if you go to Manhattan, you know, there's, there's no sense now, the Lower East Side, I mean, the Lower East Side is where Kavanaugh has his bar now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, or had his bar. He closed it down. What, what was it called? The, the, the Red Line. No, the Dorian Gray. Oh, the Dorian Gray. No, the Red yeah, Line yeah. was on Bleecker Street. Yeah, yeah. Where all of Monkstown works illegally <laughs> every year. <laughs> <laughs> finest kitchen it's porters. Path. The finest kitchen porters in the whole of America yeah. came from Monkstown in the Red Line. No, but the Lower East Side. So they were making the point. They were they were riffing about music and art and culture and, and, and literature and whatever, and the punk movement. Yeah. But what they were actually saying, like if you think the punk was all about DIY, do it yourself, right? You yeah. don't need anything. You can do yourself. But what they were making the point was once, and it's, it's well, they didn't make the point, but I was thinking this, right? right. But okay. once-
2: They should have made the point. They
1: should have made the point, right? <laughs> I was going to ring up Blondie and say, Debbie, got a point here for you. But when, of course, Bourdain is now dead, which is the, one of the great tragedies. Because I actually met Bourdain, did I tell you? No, go I on, interviewed him. I interviewed him for Agenda years ago, right? right? And met, the extraordinary thing is, because Agenda was on TV3 on a Sunday morning, it was yeah. very niche, yes. which means no audience. <laughs> but it was great, was, because it wasn't on RTE, we could decide what current affairs was. Because if you're doing a similar program on RTE, you'd have like, you know, producers and editors, yeah. and they'd be yeah. forcing you to talk to, I don't know, Finance ministers or something like that. Yeah. That's their perception. Yeah. I was calling it eroctus current affairs. You know, it's yeah. Leinster House television, right? But we couldn't decide what current affairs was and we decided let's go to New York and interview lots of people. But Burdain, not about food, but about the people in the restaurant. Right. Who are they? Where do they live? And I'm gonna give you a quote from Burdane about the Go on the restaurant because again it comes back to my time as a fantastic dishwasher. One of the finest dishwashers ever, right? But Bourdain was talking about the people in Kitchen Confidential. Have you ever read his book? No, no, I have It's a gem, right? The people who work in restaurants. So he says, so who the hell exactly are these guys, the boys and girls in the trenches, right? In the kitchens, right? Yeah. You might get the impression from the specifics of my less than stellar career that all line cooks are whacked out moral degenerates, dope fiends, refugees, thuggish assortments of drunks, snake thieves, sluts, and psychopaths. You wouldn't be too far off base. The business, as the respected three-star chef Scott Bryan explains, attracts fringe elements, right? People for whom something in their lives has gone terribly wrong. Or maybe, just like me, they like it here. Right? right? Yeah, yeah. And, but the question is, where do those people live? This is the interesting thing. Yeah. If house prices go up too much, if the city becomes unaffordable, people like that cannot live. So the city then loses its soul because a city should be a melting pot of all sorts of people because what is so attractive about cities is the fact that a city sucks in people from all over yeah. for a variety of different reasons you yeah. know people go for ambition they go for wages they go Would for to make fame. it functional
2: to make, make it to the city function yeah. you know on a on a very basic level
1: exactly you know and if you think about if you think about you know if you look historically why people left small places to go to cities like i was always intrigued when we were in new york or in london You'd meet these people or you'd hear them, older men in particular and women from the west of Ireland, mm. with really, really like very, very heavy Mayo or Galway accents, Connemara accents. And yet the beautiful thing about the city is they can find their place, right? So these people, and I remember TK's uncles, I met them from Mayo. Yeah. Many of them hadn't been to Dublin. They went straight from Mayo to London on the mail boat here from Dunleary. And they were, yeah. uh, but they found their place, yeah, you yeah, know. Yeah. And 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 these were adventurous people and transformational people and people who said, you know what, I'm going to go and make something mm. of my life. So cities, but they ha- remained very Mayo, though. Oh yeah, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. But even, but so cities have to be this extraordinary blend of social strata, mm. right? And what Bourdain is making the point is, you know, if the kitchen porter cannot live within, you know a couple of blocks are commuting distance, but I don't mean like commuting yeah, in yeah, terms yeah. Of, of the restaurant, then it all begins to atrophy. And what you get is gentrification. Gentrification isn't a bad thing in in and of itself, but what it does is it destroys the soul of the city. Yeah. And the soul of the city is the beating commercial idea that all these restaurants, whether it's in Dublin or New York, they all need to function. So the, 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 the point I took from that conversation mm. was that, cities need to provide a refuge, a home, a place. I mean, if you look at why people go to cities, you know, all sorts of things. In yeah. fact, I have reading a great book called Metropolis recently, and he's making the point that most people go to cities for sex.
2: Right.
3: it's okay. really
1: interesting for liberation you know for, yeah, you, know, yeah, for yeah. you know for for stuff you can't get at home yeah you know, okay? yeah yeah yeah, yeah.
2: I mean, what well, that makes
1: sense you, <laughs> you know?
2: it's part of the exploration
1: yeah it's part of the adventure exactly exactly and therefore it has to it has to and I was I was also reading about the Greek agora John yeah the Greek so the Greeks had an amazing idea that they put the market at the center of the city. Right. And that was the thriving hub of the city. So people came, peddlers and hawkers and hustlers and people from all over the place. Right. Came to the centre. So unlike other civilizations, which used to put the garrison or they put the king's palace mm. or they put the great, you know, cathedral to such and such. Right. The Greeks always put the market. And the reason they did is they understood that the city has to be alive. So if even if you, you know, Aristotle, the Greeks were obsessed about being a citizen. Yeah. How do you be a good citizen? This is their thing. How do you be a good citizen? You be a good citizen by learning to live together. And you don't learn to live with people of your own social class. You learn to live together with people of different social classes. Yeah, sure. And that's what always intrigued me about, you know, the cosmopolitan nature of cities. Or even the expression, you know, to be urbane. You know that idea, you know. Because people yeah, yeah. think, oh, urbane means you're... I don't know. Sophisticated in some sort of way. Yeah, or suave or well educated yeah, yeah. or well read. I actually don't think that it's. A, I think being urbane is something much more interesting. It's actually being an urban person, being somebody who can live in the city, who's open to the possibility of the city, who's kind of messy. Cities yeah. have to be messy. Yeah. Because yeah. messiness is at the core. And it's funny when you hear Bourdain talking about cities, what's well, the thing? It's the messiness. You know, it's not about clean lines. In fact, sometimes when I hear architects say, no, oh, we should have all buildings like this, <laughs> right? I always think, no. Clean lines is anti-urban. Urb- urbanity and urban, the urban world, is a messy, random, unpredictable... Well, it's the melting pot. Yeah, the old, the old, know, the, old the old phrase. So when I was thinking that we should introduce the Bourdain approach to cities, which is that a city will work if in every restaurant from the kitchen porter, to the commie chef, the side chef, the sous chef, the maitre d', to the swankiest table Yeah. out by the window when people can look at you, right? <laughs> look at me, I'm in the swanky <laughs> table, right? All those people should be able to live within 15 minutes of the restaurant. That should be the aim of the 15-minute city. Because then you will get this extraordinary energy that cities need to have to grow. Because if they don't have their own internal energy, They'll just become amusement parks for rich people. Yeah. You know, who go in and say, well, I'll go to a swanky restaurant and then I'll drive home. Yeah. And then suddenly you lose all that creative, the creative juices of of a city. And that's the challenge for places like Dublin. How do you get poor people to live in the city? You build subsidized housing and you get rich people to pay for it. And that's the essence.
0: with defeated